For sake of all beings, wisdom, compassion, and non-cling awareness, I will awaken quickly for the sake of all beings. I will awaken quickly for the sake of all beings. I will awaken quickly for the sake of all beings. Wonderful. How did it? Uh, how was your explorations? Good. Any questions? Any things you would like to share about your childhood, or perhaps what you did last summer? Yeah, when you went for a holiday. Let's cut. Anything? Anything? Anything that arising? Yes. Yes, Barry. Yes. Yesterday you were speaking of separating events, and I can't remember what we're separating them from. Uh, events and objects, objects. And how we relate to objects and how we relate to events. We often consider objects to be the same when they're not, or we don't know they're not, but we assume they're not, that they are. And events were often give a lot of interval to them. And this is probably, uh, you know, I, I'm loath to just come out and say it. Um, I always get surprised by other factors, but it's most likely uh, an a biological evolutionary thing that we need to do. If you really think about objects and events, it makes perfect sense uh, in some ways. In some ways not, because uh, we can mistake um, objects as being the same when they're not. But I think there's different instances where that makes makes kind of sense. And, and how would you describe an event seems there's a cause and an effect and where did that event actually start? No event started anywhere. <laughs> and no event ceases anywhere. Because all phenomena is interdependent. There are sometimes proximate, what's called proximate causes, which is there's a main event that seems to start something off. But if you really look at phenomena carefully, you'll see that you can never, ever find the arisal, and you can never, ever find the cessation. How's that for studying four months of Abhidhamma? <laughs> because when did the event start? All the way back at the beginning of the universe? Um, five years ago? Where? All these conditions coming together uh, bringing something about, can you say that the thing in itself is isolated from the conditions that produced it? No. So it's actually a, it's actually fairly primitive to say that there's any event and there's any object. Quite primitive. Right? You knew that, Barry. It's quite primitive. Primitive mind to go, there's an object out there separate from other objects, and there's an event out there that is separated out from millions of other events that have led to its formation, and where could you say that one thing led off and one thing began? You can never say that. But in relative terms, we use language to, to describe these things, but then we eventually believe what we the language that we use. Like, there is a teacup there. There is no teacup there that is in any way separate from the table, from the teapot, 
from the shape, from what it sits on, from the room, who fashioned it, and ad infinitum, all the way to the mine, where the port or the uh, stoneware came from, the clay, the transportation of it, everything affects everything all the way along. So therefore, there's no true event, there's no cessation. Sounds like the Prajnaparamita. It's no cessation of any event, and there's no object arising, there's no object ceasing, therefore there's no that you that came into being, and there's no you that will ever cease. Therefore, death is an illusion, and birth is an illusion. Making sense? It is. Any other questions? I know that's tidied up. We like to put tidy little bows on things. And yes? Now is today, and last night was last night. Unrelated, of course. <laughs> about dreams, and that there's a story, and that that can be important. Um, so is that, in terms of relative reality, and in terms of the karma of that being, and unraveling that, but ultimately not? Ultimately not. Ultimately, there is no story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it all depends. You know, Ultimately, there's infinite stories, but at a relative level, one needs to listen to stories. Because as karmic beings subject to cause and effect at a relative level, uh, it's important to actually be intelligent and clear and be more discerning about it so you can direct uh, the dream, the big dream, the dreams, in a good way for what? Liberation. So for instance, let's say you have a dream. I had a lovely one last this morning when I, before I woke up, a very important one. Uh, really speaking from a lama, saying uh, this is what I would really like to you, you uh, to do uh, on behalf of uh, uh, beings. And uh, it wasn't surprising. I, yes, yes, yes. Uh, but that's, is it the, uh, the lama speaking? Or is it the lama mind speaking? I don't make a difference. So you listen. You listen. And some messages, if you don't trust yourself, uh, they're not so important, you know, or their confusion, or whatever. But they're always, always working something out. I think the, I believe the greater the depth of your surety of your being and your clarity of your being and your openness of your being, then the messages can be taken. How sort of one? Whether they're significant or not, how significant they are, whether you should act on them. That's, I guess, that's a question. Should you act on them? Sometimes you should. Sometimes, just leave it alone, leave it alone, leave it alone, leave it alone. alone. But the more you have depth question, uh, in a good way, the more really you should listen because the answer is going to come fast and quick. (laughs) Therefore, listen to them. But how do you know if they're actually good, clear messages? Because you have to do enough purification to trust those messages. How How do you know? Because you have the evidence. You have enough evidence that says, wow, those decisions are good. I'll keep listening. People think it's just mystical, you know. Yes, I had some messages and now I'm going to act on it. Well, you kind of have to keep track because there's a whole bunch of messages that people act on that turn out to not be great decisions, right? 
but they forget those, but they remember the ones that work. You know, like the predictions of last year, the end of the financial? I got emails and people worried and coming to me and saying, you know, so-and-so says the end of the financial, the, we're, we're going to be in a major depression for, for like, uh, you know, 10 years, and it's going to be the end of all financial system, this sort of thing. And that's next summer. But it was also the summer before. And uh, by the way, it was the summer before. Uh, by the way, the stock market almost always goes down the summer. It takes a nice plummet. So I get this, and you know, they're panicking, and they're making decisions. You see? But then when you say, by the way, do you remember the prediction the stock market was going to crash and we're going to have a economic de depression? They go, I oh, know, not really. Well, you told that to me. It was in the, it was all over the place. Really? So we have this inbuilt thing is that when it connects, we go, hallelujah. But if it doesn't, we have a very forgetful kind of memory about selective memory that that prediction never worked. Now, I'm not saying that you can't predict. I'm not saying there aren't beings that have extraordinary predictive ability. But there's a lot of fuzz out there, you know? Anyways, yeah, everything has a story, a relative story. The question is, do you want to follow them all? <laughs> do you need to? Make sense? Yeah. Eventually, uh, the dream life is but is as sane in some ways as the normal daily life, and that the messages are just as clear. There really there isn't any. Not it's not bizarre. It's just clear. Even if it's bizarre, it's obvious what it is. Any others? It's, I found it fascinating. I've, I've talked about this before. I found it fascinating that some people um, have a very hard time interpreting dreams. They just, it's like they don't, the story isn't obvious, but to somebody else, it's completely obvious. And they're not very good about interpreting their own dreams or anybody else's dreams. Or they're okay to interpret someone else's dream like that, but if they hear that, there's just no connection. It's interesting. But every single dream, every every movement of the body, every action, every, all has a story behind it. The question is how much do you want, want to get into a dialogue about it? And many of them are just not useful. The best way is that it prints itself out clearly and economically. And that's all you need. Do you know what I mean? Just prints it itself out and it's just fine. Any more than that? Does that? Does that? These are things we need to sort out. You know, we need to sort out. We beings need to sort out individually. How, how much is really useful? As I say about insight meditation, people come to me with all kinds of convoluted um, uh, emotional stuff that they want to work out, and I go, well, it's not helpful for insight. But I go, but I want to work that way. Well, you could spend five or ten years, but why would you? So this is about being economical. In the same way, for instance, in the tantric tradition, they often say, uh, there's, a, there's a statement about um, not flitting too much from system to system, school to school, because you can get very confused. You can spend a lot of time. I'll give you an example. This, this, is, this is interesting. I'll see if I can get this, this fairly verbatim. This is an interesting um, point for you. When Atisha, who's a great, great, sometimes called the second Buddha too, Depends who, who's calling it. But Atisha, great, great Indian master, great scholar, tantric master, 
came to Tibet, he, made, he met um, Rinchen Zhangpo, who was a, also a great tantric master. And they stayed together for some time. And uh, Atisha had great respect for, for Rinchen Zhangpo, who brought and was a great translator. He was a very, very great translator a lot of a lot of um, ancient tantric texts. So they're there, to, there together. And he notices that Rinchen Zhangpo has all these different paintings on the wall of all these different deities from the different tantras. So this one's from the, from the basic tantra. This one's from the uh, first tantra, second tantra, third tantra, fourth tantra, and so on. So Atisha says, what do you do with all these? Because it's, it's very Tibetan to split them all up at that time. You know, split them up into categories. And say, well, what do you do with all these? Well, every day I go to this one and do these, right? and this one and do these. He says, that's astounding. And you do this one and I do the specific visualization, and this one's this specific visualization, and this one, this specific this visualization. So, Rinchen says, well, or uh, Atisha goes, that's remarkable. You do that every day. He says, yes, I do that every day. I separate them all in. Well, how do you, what rules do you use for separating them? I follow the sadhana perfectly as according to the tradition. And I make sure I do all of them, you know. And Atisha had just praised him publicly, saying, this man really knows, you know, what he's doing. And then he said to Rinchen Zanipo, he says, okay, you're confused. (laughs) You need help. Because he was just spending a lot of time when he didn't have to spend a lot of time. Got the story confused. He only really needed to do one, find one and do it in the end. But he was spreading his energies too thin. Okay, shall we carry on with uh, sound? How about this afternoon? Anything, any observations from your encounter this afternoon? Not a word, not a peep. Lots of laughs. Mm, serious, eh? Okay. Maybe if I wait a little bit, something will pop out. I'm sure he did. But that is... Now, is that obscurating the point? Is that a decoy? I have no doubt that Terry did. It was very interesting. A lot of different things came up. And for me, one of the things that I thought later that I was most surprised when other people didn't react the way I did to something. We did one exercise where you clap in different parts of the head and mm-hmm. stuff, and, mm-hmm. and it was obvious to me that it was more fearful in front. But when I heard other people say, oh, no, in the back it was more fearful, I thought, how could that be? It really showed me that, that I yes. really thought things quite differently than other people different interpretations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about in making statements to each other? Did you do any of that? Yes. Any observations about that? Nothing? Yes. Well, there, it's hard to tell whether you know, there was, there was, there was um, a tendency to want to either assume that there was a lack of our part of intention in getting the communication was a lack of listening on the other end. Mm-hmm. And it became clear to me that there that it's, that it's the skill, one of the skills of communicating is to sp- speak according to who you're speaking to so that you're being clear and, and not being interpretive, but that you're putting you know, uh, as much intention and 
distinction into your communication, whether it's just the words or what particular point of view you want those words attached to those. And so we tried to separate the point of view and the words, and very often the message didn't get across. Hmm. It's quite something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Let's explore it, then you can, you can when you hear this, uh, maybe raise uh, some things that you discovered today. Let me just review a little bit here, just a tiny little bit. I'll just finish with this, the end of this paragraph because it's a lovely statement and you've heard it lots of times, but it's good to remind beings. And regardless of which systematization we choose, which way in which we view sound or echo, we cannot escape the fact that our experience of sounds involves a significant amount of illusion. Anybody discovering that? Sounds carry a significant amount of illusion. A lot of interpretation, Yes. Tremendous, loaded with interpretation. Or, you just said, loaded with a lot of not hearing. Yeah? How much actually do we hear? Especially as we get older. Or as we're younger. What What did you say? What did you say? It is interesting to note in the great treatise on the perfection of wisdom, It continues its discussion by investigating another dimension of illusory nature of echoes. This is the illusory appearance that an echo produced by some piece of speech involves both a speaker and a recipient. When you hear an echoed hello, it seems as if somebody is greeting you. The treatise regards human speech as having an echo-like illusory nature. Now, from the Indian perspective, you're going to, you might find this, this fascinating. From the Indian perspective, this makes a lot of sense because the common theory or view of how speech is formed assumes that it works very much like an echo. The idea was that when someone is about to speak, he has a particular wind in his mouth that then travels down towards the navel. When it hits the belly an echo is produced and the sound is reflected upwards. Where it hits one of the places of speech production, the throat, the gums, the lip, and the teeth, the tongue, the nose, or the chest. So in other words, the way in which sound, a speech production was considered was a reflection from the belly, coming upwards. Make a wind, it goes down, comes up, and makes sounds. Interesting. The sounds that leave the body afterward are experienced as speech, but experienced because of the world view as an echo. Kind of interesting. And the Prajnaparamita says, quote, Thus language is produced. The fool does not understand this. Faltering, stubborn, he brings forth aversion and illusion. Now that's important. Now they've put the word aversion in. Right? Anger, hatred, irritation, faltering, stubborn, he brings forth aversion and illusion.
But the wise one is not annoyed, does not cling, he does not make a mistake. The sound which comes and goes manifests speech, but there is no agent to speech. No, I'll carry on and finish this one. He does not make a mistake. The sound which comes and goes manifests speech, but there is no agent. It is a magic trick. Who would think that this skeleton, this bundle of nerves, could speak? Does a bell speak to you? Does the bell speak to you? Come on. Now, I know people with... Yep, bells speak to me all the time. They do. If I tap a teacup, they say, the teacup gave me a message. Does the bell speak to you? No. How about this? Blurp. It's a sound, yes? And what's producing the sound? We attribute an agent called Lama Mark, or I produce that sound. But if you actually examine it with clear mind, what produced the sound? No more than this. What do we attribute to it? A conscious, uh, willful actor shaping the sound, right? Mm. So, it is a magic trick. Who would think that the skeleton, this bundle of nerves... Okay, we say, so let's do it this way. You said that to me. You said that to me. But what actually spoke? Where did the sound come from? A body. And what's a body composed of? Nerves. nerves. Well, that's you. No, no, no. That's nerves. So you're saying that, that the nerves are you? Oh, yes, I've learned at school that nerves, neurons, uh, is my brain. And therefore, that's me. What a load of views. 5% human cells, 95% virus bacteria. Mm-hmm. And how much are nerve cells in the brain? And what's the other component of the brain? Glial cells. More than 50, sometimes 60, 70% glial cells. <laughs> that, that shape, that shape, secrete, support, uh, modify nerves. We focus on nerves. We, foc- we are nerve heavy. Take away the glial cells and what happens? No brain, no operation, very quick death. Curious, huh? The point made in this passage is this. Suppose you face an echo-producing cliff and shout, You idiot! After some seconds, you seem to hear a sound from the cliff, someone shouting, You idiots! I quite like this. It's fun. We can do it over and over again. Knowing that it is an echo, you will not be annoyed by this. 
since there is nobody there at the cliff calling you an idiot. You getting the message? <laughs> but the analogy but the analogy goes, human speech is similarly produced by an echo effect. So why are you annoyed when another person calls you an idiot if you are not annoyed by the echo? Do you see why I had you do what you did today? Where does the annoyance come from? Where does the elation come from? Oh man, they they've really given me praise. But what's giving praise? Where's the you? Where's the assumption that there's actually a clear, intelligent, thinking being there and not a bag of bones, as would be said in the, especially in the Terawadan tradition, just a bag of bones opening its mouth up? How much, and then Terry, as you said, how much meaning gets implied by certain statements? How much is really being heard and how much is being interpreted? So why are you annoyed when another person calls you an idiot if you are not annoyed by the echo? There seems to be an obvious answer. In the first case, there's an agent and that is what we get angry at. In the second case, there is no agent. Is that right? And that is why we don't get angry. Does this all make sense? Perfectly. Fine, yes? So far? Pretty good? All sewn up? Taken care of? You're waiting, right? Just all taken care of, yes? Have you ever been on the phone lately and you've been talking to someone on the phone and realize it's not an agent, it's a computer you're talking to? Have you had that? Going further, see see about what we mean by agent. In 1966, the computer scientist Joseph Weizenbaum, Weizenbaum wrote a simple. This 1966 wrote a simple computer program called Eliza. The program simulates a therapist. One can ask it for advice. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd enjoy this. Have you heard this? No, you've never heard this. Oh, just wait. This is 1966. That's a long time. Mm-hmm. It's a very, it's, it's, some of you weren't even born. The program sti- simulates, doesn't stimulate. <laughs> it probably could. The, but, well, it was, the, <laughs> it's fun. Yeah, this would be fun to actually read in certain circles. Of the game. Not just with like one therapist or two therapists. The program uh, simulates a therapist. One can ask it for advice by typing in a question. And the program will then reply. The mechanism behind the program is disconcertingly simple. All it does in providing answers is to try to break down the input, that is the person's input or questions, into its grammatical components and then echoes them back, substituting into ready-made phrases. Just kind of turns around things like, so how do you feel? Feel how you are? You know, sort of thing. Right? Sort of like Yoda, right? Feel how you are. Oh. oh. And why do you feel like that? Because I do. Why do you 
do. <laughs> but more, a bit more sophisticated. Despite the simplicity, the results are often interesting. Here is a conversation the author had with Eliza. Hello, I'm Eliza. Hello. How are you today? What would you like to discuss? This is That's Eliza. I would like to talk about illusions. Come, come. Elucidate your thoughts. <laughs> and, uh, I have to read this. They are an interesting case, aren't they? Are you sure? Yes, I think they provide some interesting problems. Do you really think so? I do. Are you interested in illusion? Why are you interested in whether or not I am interested in illusion? <laughs> it was a computer, right? Computer program. I assumed you were interested in how the human mind works. You're not really take, talking about me, are you? Well, who are you anyway? Would you prefer if I were not anyway? What would that be like? Are such questions on your mind often? <laughs> oh, that's great. Eliza, I hope you don't mind me saying so, but I think you are an illusion too. <laughs> what makes you think I'm an illusion too? You sound like a computer. We were discussing you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> but what makes me different from a computer? Have you asked anyone else? Yes, but none of the answers convince me. Are you sure? <laughs> That's wonderful. After a couple of exchanges, Eliza's responses tend to get be, to become a bit repetitive and sometimes don't make sense at all. Despite the fact that the program nowadays strikes us as somewhat primitive, Back in the 60s, 1960s, people exposed to it reacted quite strongly. Worryingly so, we might think. There were numerous cases where subjects interacted with the program for some time before it became apparent to them that there was no real therapist replying to their questions at the other side of the computer terminal. More interestingly, in some cases, the emotional involvement with Eliza the idea that the program showed interest or concern in the questions discussed did not go away even after being told what Eliza is and how it works. This assumption that the program functioned very, very much like we do, despite the explicit knowledge that it does not, subsequently became known as the Eliza effect. Even when told it was the computer, it doesn't matter. In the same way that when, uh, was it in Austin, Texas? A whole bunch of operations were performed. Um, people, A whole group of people were told knee surgery is going to be performed for them. And a whole bunch of controls. And what they did is they did a phony surgery. Just made an incision in the knee and sewed it back up. These are people expecting to get knee surgery. How do you feel? Great. The surgery worked perfectly. 
It's a little incision with a little sewing job. Later on, how do you feel? Fantastic. That was a really good operation, very successful. My knees feel better. Guess what we did? What'd you do? We made a little tiny cut on the surface of your skin and we put some stitches in. You did? How do you feel? Fine. Later on, how do you feel? Just fine. Strength of placebo effect. Even when they're told they never had an operation, they're just fine. The knee healed just fine. The illusion underlining the Eliza effect, by the way, they're experimenting, there's a group I read, experimenting more and more with computers uh, um, interacting with humans for quite a long time to help them with certain kinds of neuroses. Very, very, very successful. So I'll just let you know. The illusion underlying the Eliza effect, that is treating a simplistic piece of software as if it was a rational agent with beliefs and desires, appears to be connected with what is sometimes called the intentional stance. This term, introduced by the philosopher and cognitive scientist Daniel Dennett, denotes one of the many ways in which we can see phenomena around us. Take a simple object like a thermometer. This is a this is a often used and wonderful um, uh, example. We can see it from a material stance, just as a physical object, a glass tube filled with mercury. Correct? Thermometer, object. We know it's a glass tube filled with mercury. That's all. Yes. Mm-hmm. Or we can regard it as something with a certain purpose, a thermometer. Just listen to language. A thermometer. As a device made in order to measure temperature. This means seeing it from the design stance. When we see the thermometer from the intentional stance, we conceptualize it in the terms of mental states. For example, we say that the thermometer knows it's 74 degrees Fahrenheit. Does anybody ever do that? The thermometer knows. The car knows. Has anybody ever used a stance with a material object to give it meaning? The bell's making a be- the bell's making a beautiful sound. Watch this. The bell is ma- giving a be- It's giving a beautiful ring. The bell is giving off a beautiful ring as if it has intention. Can you think of situations where objects are given meaning? I hear it all the time from people. The earthquake fell because of the community's mental states. Sorry, the the landslide, the mudslide fell. The tree fell over because they weren't in the right state. The Lake is rough today. The lake is rough today. Oh, how about this? I heard this. I actually uh, read this. The hurricane, this is in the United States, that hurricane is evil. The destructive force is evil. The ocean is terrifying. Can you give me any examples? This is bad weather. Is there any bad weather? Is there any bad weather? 
What's bad? There's no bad weather. There's no good weather. If you're looking at Jupiter and you see a, a, a big a storm, a wind's racing at 300 kilometers an hour, is it a bad wind? Is it a good wind? It's neither a good wind or a bad wind. So do we impart things with meaning that has no intention? That was a good liftoff. Spacecraft goes up, that, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good rocket. That was a good firing. Hmm. For example, we say the thermometer knows what the temperature is. Some stances are more useful than others for understanding different phenomena. Seeing the thermometer just as a glass tube ignores a lot of its complexity, while regarding it from the intentional stance presents us with plenty of pseudo-problems. For instance, where are the thermometer's beliefs stored? Like, where does the thermometer get the belief that it, ha- there's a certain te- that it has a certain temperature? Where does, it, where does it get that? Can it draw inferences from them? Could a thermometer doubt its own temperature judgments? Well, temperature's r- temperature, the thermometer's right on. Have you heard that? That's, it's, it's extremely accurate. Does the thermometer say, well, I'm not so sure I am? <laughs> I, 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 I'm actually only good for plus or minus 0.01 of a degree, so don't, don't interpret too much. So we could want to say that the illusory conception of both the person offended by the echo shouting, you idiot, back at her, as well as someone who feels understood by Eliza's responses are based on seeing the echo voice or the computer program from the intentional stance. A stance that is inadequate in these particular cases. So if it's coming from a human being, how do we feel? Isn't that standard one? How do we feel? How do you feel? How do, you, how do I feel about it? <laughs> you see? And what is it? What's speaking? The state of mind. But that's an interpretation. If you actually look what's speaking, what is it? A mouth moving? Yes? We might even say sometimes flapping in the wind. (laughs) But how do we know which stance is the right one to adopt? We can imagine two different types of replies. A realist might say, quote, some objects, like sticks and stones, are just dumb pieces of matter. Others, like thermometers, clocks, tape, tape recorders, or computers, are artifacts. They are made by human beings with a particular purpose in mind to measure temperature or time, to record sounds, to process information. A third group, like the people around you, and some animals at least, have desires and beliefs. Wouldn't you say that? Does a CD recorder, CD player, or a DVD player have beliefs? I know people that sometimes say they do. Ever had a computer where you say it's actually got a mind of its own? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No matter what, in the state that you're in, it re- it rebels. A third group, like the people around you, and some animals, and maybe some objects at least, have desires and beliefs. If you meet an unfamiliar object, 
invest, investigate it closely and you'll find out which group it belongs to. Then you know what the correct stance is. Isn't that realistic? Isn't that the realist approach? All you need to do is categorize it and it's all perfectly safe and sound. You know what's coming. On the other hand, someone else might say, that is not right. There is no such thing as the correct stance for each object. What stance you should adopt depends on what kind of ends you want to achieve. If you try to calculate how many people fit into an elevator, it makes sense to regard them from the material stance. A biologist may see them from the design stance as things that have a certain purpose, such as to survive and spread their genes. If you interact with them, it is usually best to adopt an intentional stance. Sometimes it's useful to explain how a complex mechanism works by pretending it has beliefs and desires. The CD player spot out the CD at me. <laughs> right? We do these things, yes? The machine turned on by itself. The light bulb isn't acting as the way it should. The wiring, listen to this, the wiring is faulty. The plumbing has a mind of its own. Are these, these are used. Why did the, uh, why did the refrigerator just turn on? So it's easy to give objects that we don't believe have intention an intentional stance, right? Easy. And do we do it fairly often? Yes. What makes you so sure that a human being has an intentional stance or has a correct intentional stance or is even thinking or the thoughts are even well thought out or meaningful or because their belly's not doing very well that day. Sometimes it's useful to explain how a complex mechanism works by pretending it has beliefs and desires. Car mechanics do it all the time. Quote, the engine knows it's getting too hot and therefore it wants more coolant. Do people name cars? Yes. Boats, ships, physical things. My house. The house knows when I'm there. I hear people talk that way. The house knows when I'm around. It surrounds me. It, it, it embraces me. It, you know, this, this house is cold. What about that? This house does not just doesn't feel right. This house is a cold house. It's a hot, it's a warm house. It's a cozy house. As if the house is full of ideas and willful activity and intention, yes? Would you say it happens fairly often? Hmm. Would you say that projection happens fairly often? Mm -hmm. Car mechanics do it all the time. And who knows, there might even be cases where it's useful to adopt the intentional stance towards sticks and stones. Those, sta those stones looked at me. <laughs> you know, the stones has kind of eye-like things. The stone's looking at me. The stone is hot. The stone is cold. The stone, ah, the stone burned me. How about that? The stone burned me. The stick hit me. 
as if the tree had intention to drop a branch on your head at that moment. But we do do that, don't we? I just missed being hit by the tree. Must be something I did really well today. Or my karma. Hmm? My karma allowed me not to be hit by that tree, but it hit the road. If we consider ways of deciding a central question studied in artificial intelligence, namely, how to decide whether a man-made artifact, such as a computer, is capable of intelligent thought, uh, I think CD players and all kinds of things now, it becomes evident that the second view, that the stance adopted towards a given object depends on the end we want to achieve, seems to be the most popular one. The most well-known test is a so-called Turing test. Have you heard the Turing test? Mm-hmm. Turing, very famous computer scientist, who proposed a test to determine whether a computer has actually intention or not, or consciousness. Named after the mathematician Alan Turing, who designed one of the first computers. The setup is simple. The, experiment is, the experimenter is connected by his computer terminal to two different rooms. Do you have that? Terminal? In in those days when we had a terminal? I don't know. Did you grow up in those days? You don't remember the the computer terminal? Isn't that what the the stand is now? Oh, no, 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 no. This was a keyboard, a big, thick metal thing, about this big, with a big keyboard. And what? (laughs) Nothing else. A cable went out of it. And it usually went across the university, or went into the phone lines, and disappeared, and it went into a building about the, half the size of this, full of, of a computer. And you sat at the terminal, and you might get a little printed message come out, and you put code in, you put code out. You never had that, that lovely experience. Oh, that was quite a time. The only one, I mean, this is just a, a social comment, but the only ones I knew who really enjoyed that were a certain class of, of beings. Because uh, I, I found it not very uh, satisfactory. Okay, the setup's simple. An experimenter is connected by his computer terminal to two different rooms, and you can have a screen, of course, little screen. And in the, have you remember the old computers with the old pro- 1980s? Little dot, beep, beep, beep. That's all you saw on the screen. Little dot, and you typed in a bit of code, ECPT. Everybody knows what ECPT is, or ECHO, echo, which stands for you know, some computer code, you type in echo, and then <laughs> if you're lucky, usually it's just wait. <laughs> the entire the entire hard disk capacity, the super this super new computer is ten megabytes. <laughs> Do you have any idea how small it is? Yeah. That was the first laptop computers that I, I had the first ones. Ten megabyte hard disks. Now we think 10 gigabytes is small. Right? <laughs> so you push it, echo. More code comes out. <laughs> Respond to the code. <laughs> That's all you get. In one room, a human being. In the other, a computer. Got it? One room's a human being. Another room's a computer. All communications proceed by typing. 
the experimenter does because in those days a voice recognition wasn't even really very much a possibility. We're talking 1930s, 1920s for the earliest so-called computers. All communication proceeds by typing. The experimenter who does not know which of the two participants is the computer and which is uh, which is the computer and which is human ask questions in order to find out both the human and the computer try to convince him that they are the human being this is the test this is still used today a computer is said to have passed the turing test if after a reasonable period the experimenter is not able to say which is which we now use this for what purpose telephone conversations, phone up messaging, and you have an entire conversation with the computer, and it's sometimes quite satisfactory. Or after a while, just a second, hold on, <laughs> passing you to an agent. The underlying idea is obviously that we regard a computer as capable of intelligent thought, that is, as something that we see from the intentional stance if it manifests a certain behavior. If it doesn't manifest a certain behavior, we say it's not intelligent, it's not intentional, right? It becomes an object. If it matches our belief system and it matches what we think is intentional, we call it what? An intelligent, sentient creature, like we do with a rock. When the rock doesn't behave, we say it's just a rock. When the rock warms, we say that rock is so warming to us. Depends on what belief system. The underlying idea, obviously, that we regard a computer as capable of intelligent thought, that is something that we see from the intentional stance if it manifests a certain behavior. The machine has to be able to respond in adequate ways, and because it does so, we decide that the best way to predict its future behavior is by seeing it from the intentional stance. What the computer is actually made of, or how it is programmed, is now irrelevant. We don't care. Is that right? We don't care it's a computer as long as it fits an, an, an intentional stance. Then we're fine. If it doesn't, we call it a thing, an it. For all we know, it might be a complex contraption made of Coke cans and pieces of string. Isn't that right? For many people who use computers today, how do you know what's inside it? Have you ever uh, taken apart a hard disk? How many people have ever seen a hard disk or seen uh, chips and know what computer chips are? Most people don't. What do they do? They push on the button and things happen. But for all you know, there could be mice in there or dust bunnies. Well, actually, you could have the whole thing full of dust bunnies and a little chip this big and as much as in a cell phone, and it's just perfectly fine. Amazing. How much room do you need to match a cell phone of 2012? If you were to build the same thing that we can pack in... Oh, if you want to build something that's basically the same as an iPhone today, how big a space do you need back in the 1980s to do the same thing? The size of a huge freighter truck. And not only that, some of the technology simply wasn't able to be done at the time. 
the only people that had GPS were military, and there were these big, giant units they had to carry around. So Coke cans and pieces of string. But in this case, the Turing test implies that we should adopt the intentional stance towards a pile of Coke cans. Well, the Coke cans made an intelligible sound. They gave me an answer. I don't need to know any more than that, do I? I'm just happy that I have the right answer or the right um, message. There is no need to look inside to see whether the thing is really conscious. How many of you want to know and look inside every time the cell phone gives you the correct message and check whether there's something inside or not? We don't care anymore, do we? We don't care. What do we want now? We just want it to act according to our belief system, according to an intentional stance. There is no need to look inside to see whether the thing is really conscious. When was the last time you looked inside a human being to see if they're conscious? How do we know that a human being is conscious? What, what evidence do we have? It's different than a computer terminal or a computer screen or laptop giving you this most amazing information. Is there any way to know that the computer isn't conscious? I know some people that think it is. After all, we rarely look into our fellow beings to determine whether they are capable of intelligent thought. <laughs> we just assume it, right? Yeah. We assume it. As long as they're not comatose, we think they're conscious. Yeah, but we know that some people that are comatose now are completely conscious. We know that for a fact. 50%, right? Have you seen the numbers? 50% using um, some very recent experiments using um, eye blinks and all kinds of things have indicated that, have found out that somewhere around 50% of people that are comatose are actually have locked-in syndrome. Oh, yeah. And when they do, and when they find out from the people with locked-in syndrome how they actually feel about that, I think about 50% are absolutely quite comfortable right now about it. They've adjusted to it. It's okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm fine. Emotionally, I'm fine. Isn't that something? Yeah. So because the human being, so-called body, lying there, isn't giving the kind of responses that we normally equate with intelligent thought, we consider them to be what? Comatose and maybe even brain dead. Now it's known that somewhere about 50% are conscious and they're having to adapt. How many people that are speaking are comatose? (laughs) I I just had to do that. I had to. I had to. to. Yeah, it's just logic. It's logic. It's logic. It's logic. Normal interaction with them is usually sufficient to settle this, right? An interaction with a human being is usually sufficient to say, conscious, intelligent human being. (laughs) That the stance with which we view phenomena should be chosen with reference to pragmatic concerns rather than based on what things are really like in themselves is also suggested by the discussion of the illusory echo in the great treatise on the perfection of wisdom. Let me, let me repeat that. 
That stance with which we, we view phenomena should be, ch should be chosen with reference to pragmatic concerns rather than based on what things are really like in themselves. So normally, what he, the, the point he's making is that normally we instantly take the pragmatic route, not really how things are. That's, that's really what this is all about. The illusion is that we make assumptions, we have beliefs, but we're really trying to do it based on some pragmatic, int intentional outcome to solve something that we need. And if it works, we don't need to go any further. We don't need to know who's in there, what's operating, whether it's Coke cans, dust bunnies, we don't, we don't care. From the great treatise on the perfection of wisdom, he, he uh, makes a, a statement. The fool is annoyed by the echo insulting him because he sees it from the intentional stance. Correct? You bad sound. You idiot. I am not. What is that? That's intentional. That somehow that sound has intention. Should we, should we try it just in case you're not convinced? Mm -hmm. Good sound or bad sound? Sound. Sound. <laughs> Nothing happened. Thank you for that. Nothing happened. And you actually had to turn away. Nothing happened. What happened in your mind? You hit yourself. Right. What was the sound like? Not very comfortable, is it? No. no. But what is it? Not even a sound. Mm. Just made up. So who, who, who finds that appealing, lovely, interesting, neutral, and maybe a little bit disconcerting? Anybody disconcerting? What is it? Just a sound. It has no intention. It has no meaning. Right? And what do we do? You idiot! <laughs> you idiot! I am not! You getting the idea? Then we have... What is it? Sound. What makes you believe that the sound that comes out of a human being is actually intelligent? Maybe we give it more meaning sometimes than it's worth. Hmm? How about newspapers? Okay, newspapers. Are newspapers sound or the written word? Well, they're communication, so we call it speech. Isn't that right? A book is speech. A newspaper paper is speech. When we read Google or we read Yahoo News, it's what? What's the difference between Yahoo News and Google News? Uh, Have you ever looked at the difference? Quality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of quality? What does Yahoo do that Google doesn't quite do as much? Yahoo taints, excuse me for this political message, Yahoo intentionally taints sensationalism, entertainment, 
sex and bad things that happen to people. What does Google do? It has supposedly a random search engine that calls up uh, different kinds of news from around the world and puts it out there. So you might get a title, but it might be from China News, but you might, or you might get a title and you make it three, ABC, um, Norwegian News, and South, South African or, or um, the, uh, um, not usually the Syrian um, uh, Damascus newspaper. No, sometimes you can. It's quite, it's quite good. You see? A very big difference of how, of how the world's work. But is it all communication, all speech? Yes. It's all vibration. When was the last time you picked up a newspaper and actually read it for its content to feel what it's doing to you? Reacting to words on a page, yeah? shaping, shaping, shaping. But what is it? Little dots on a computer screen and words on a piece of paper. You give it tremendous meaning. And the people that write it know that. The fool is annoyed by the echo insulting him because he sees it from the intentional stance. Seeing things in this way comes naturally to us. As the example of Eliza shows, even when we know it's a computer, we're very happy if it solves our problems. Right? Even if we're told that the operation was a scam, we're still very happy that we were given attention and our knee now feels much better. In that case, even a minimal and restricted pattern of responses produce considerable emotional reactions. But if the intentional stance is not something demanded by the inner nature of the objects themselves, but is selected to facilitate our interactions with them, we can sometimes choose a different stance if this produces greater happiness. So why are we picking the stance that causes suffering? This is the question. Why is it we pick a stance that actually causes suffering when it's not needed? This must be resolved. Why do we give echo meaning? Why do we give all kinds of people meaning when we don't need to? Why do we give houses meaning and sounds meaning, all kinds of things meaning that simply don't need to be there? even when it's not pragmatic. So this is why the Prajnaparamita Sutra is calling it the person an idiot. Why? Because they're misinterpreting things. It's not even pragmatic, and it causes suffering. That's the depth of delusion. A man who sees the insults directed against him by another person as not different from those produced by a computer program or an echo, may remain calm in the face of such invective and will not get angry. If you know that the being, let's try it with human being now. If you knew that the human being was a almost infinite mass of possibilities, of ideas, of cells, of causality. This is the richness of a human being, yes? That's called compassion. 
you may not have the same anger flare up. Why? Because you're seeing it as it is. You're not you're not reading more into it than it is. This is likely to be beneficial for both the insulter and the insulted, so it appears to be a good thing not to adopt the intentional stance towards one fellow beings in this case. The wise man is therefore one who knows which stance is the right one to adopt in each case. That's the wise being. Not one stance or the other, but the right stance is appropriate. So for instance, would you enjoy it if you're trying to make a point or say something and I act like perhaps a computer? Say something. Hello. Would that be very enjoyable? No. If the uh, being in front of you makes a sound or makes a statement, and you mentioned this, this is why I'm also bringing it up, because you, you made this observation, not actually listening, not actually perceiving what was being said, how much is read into the situation? Yeah. So which stance do you take with another human being? Because that's really what most people are concerned with. They're not concerned about the house speaking to them or the echo. They're more, inter- they're more interested in the emotionality of human uh, conversation, right? I mean, many years ago, when I'd ask young people, what's, what's bugging you? What's your most important thing? It was, it was either sex or relationships or how do I communicate? What is going on with my communication? How is it that communication is just so awful? I have so many problems with communicating and feelings. I get upset with all the time and people say things to me and I say things to them and they get upset, right? How come, they, how come she or he doesn't understand me and what goes on when we have an argument and why does it turn into an argument and then sometimes it's wonderful. And how do you figure all this out? Isn't this a consideration? Mm-hmm. So how are you going to figure it out? Which stance are you going to take? Object? It's an object? Just an object? Bag of bones? Nerves? So you can look at a person. Hello, Nuno. Hair. (laughs) Skin. Fleece. Hairs. Mostly dead dead skin cells. (laughs) Mostly. Is that the way you're going to do it? Or are you going to actually believe there's some some conscious agent in there and react to the conscious agent? Hmm. Which one? Which does the wise one do? The wise one doesn't need to actually take a stance until the moment when it's appropriate because it's actually reading it correctly. Why so much emotional reaction to beings saying things today when you tried it. Did anybody have any emotional reactions to people saying things? Anybody? Or not? Or too much like a game? Maybe too much? Mm-hmm. Too artificial? When I was making statements to myself, I had lots of responses. Why? Just patterning. 
that's why I picked certain statements. Okay, now, if you were to actually look at what's speaking, mm-hmm. as what? Nerves and tissues, <clears throat> and actually look at it and feel it and see it as what? Microscopic sensations bursting and flaring and, right? Would you actually have the same emotions? It becomes ridiculous, doesn't it? It's like listening to echoes and you actually react to an echo. Do you see the point here? This is what the this is what the teachings say. If you actually see it as it is, you don't need to. Now, does that mean that you should never react to anything that anybody says? Just what it doesn't matter what anybody says. They say, you know, you're killing yourself because you're drinking too much, or you're what you read there is incorrect. You go, whatever anybody says is just an object coming out of there. You know, is that correct? No. But why give things more meaning, and why give things more emotional reactivity than they actually are? It's not compassionate. It's not wise. It's not insightful, and it's not compassionate. Make sense? It's very harmful. As a matter of fact, we've seen wars caused because of it. First World War. If nobody reacted to the Archduke of, what was it, um, was it Hungary or? Um, hmm? Austria. Austria, yeah. What would have happened? Just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen that case recently where certain countries are just about to go to war and other diplomats are saying, let it go, let it go, let it go, right on the brink of war, let it go, let it go, and we didn't have a war. Actually, active engagement by diplomats, right? Meeting together and saying, let it go, let it go, let it go, and there's been a number of recent times when wars have been averted, just let it go, let it drop, let it settle. Others, players right up. Yes, but they can't have it happen too much. It's like a virus. The virus can't kill off too much. It has to kill off just right. You could call it the the military industrial wants enough war, but if it's too much, it cripples the economy. So in the case of the United States, the amount of war is crippling the United States. It's absolutely seriously crippling it. So the virus. If the virus kills all the host off, it just doesn't grow. Mm-hmm. So it has to be very careful. The wise man is therefore one who knows which stance is the right one to adopt in each case. Those suffering from illusion are the ones who adopt stances likely to lead to suffering, such as those thinking that an echo is speaking directly to them as well as those who believe that in each case there's only one stance to adopt. There is no right stance except for the moment at which it's appropriate. Hmm? What's the right stance? What's the, what's the stance that most beings take automatically? Hmm? It's personal. It's personal. So what do we do because we're an organism designed to be protective and survive? What do we do? We take up different stances in different ways to defend ourselves from being hurt. Yeah? 
And what kind of strategies do we use? You should know what strategies you use. And you should know what strategies others use. What kind of strategies do we normally adopt to make sure we're not going to get hurt, especially verbally or physically, but especially verbally? We do it all the time. What kind of stances? What's the stance, the posture, the mental, physical posture that we use? We all have our postures, but we should know what they are. What are they? Pardon? I'm cool. I'm cool? Yeah, the cool person. Nothing affects me. It's good to get these out, just to hear it. You know, the one that you, you that, that you use or somebody around you uses. But it's good to know what your major um, I will not be harmed stance is. So pretending not to hear. Yeah, I didn't hear that. What would you say? I didn't hear that. Hmm? I didn't? Hmm? 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 Can you say it again? Hmm? Yeah. What, what other ones? I can't, if I can't hear, listen, listen to the dialogue. If I can't hear, it won't hurt me. If I remain cool, frozen, especially a certain generate, couple of generations, how are you doing? Fine. Did you like that? Um, was it good for you? Whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's all the time now. Now, now people in their fifties are doing that. So, uh, how was that? Yada 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 yada. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm getting that more and more. Yada 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 yada. What's your name? What's your name? Yada yada yada. Yada 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 yada. Whatever. My name's whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever, 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 whatever. How about others? But that's the cool person, right? With a very thin veneer of cool. What else? What else? I want to hear the calm. No, it doesn't have to be you, by the way. Just because that may get too personal, it's public. Uh, I'm not. I'm not um, keen on that stuff, but unless we need to. Some people will not let the other one speak because they're, they're putting their dialogue first. So they don't let the opportunity to hear the unpleasant. Okay, so what, what really is that? If I aggress, if I aggress, they can't hurt me. If I get in there first, I won't be able to be hurt. If I can't hear them, they won't hurt me. If they, if they can't get an idea, they won't hurt me. But the opposite, submission. Submission. Anybody? Don't put your hands up. Anybody have the submission one going? If I just submit, if I'm lowly, I'm I give in all the time, I am humble and meek and mild, I won't get hurt. Yeah? Used a lot. How about others? Any others? Yes. Spiritual. Spiritual. I'm above all that. Yep. Yeah. If I stay above all that and I have a higher purpose, right? Nothing can hurt me. Even if they kill me, I'm in a higher envelope, a higher place than most beings, and therefore, I can't possibly be hurt. Forming alliances. Forming alliances, yes. Gathering friends around. Yeah. Usually this comes under submission. If I submit to these beings, I can't get hurt. If I control these beings, if I'm in control, nothing can hurt me. You see this right now on the world stage, all these dictators going down, right? 
if I just maintain control, if I just if I build up more secret police, if I bribe more people, if we make our government more corrupt and I stay in control, nothing can hurt me. Right? It can topple like that. How about the ones around them? If I just submit, he won't or she won't kill me. Mm -hmm. It goes on for years. Any other, any other strategies? Pardon? Touchy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If I'm touchy-feely, if I'm warm, if I um, hug people, if I bring them into my uh, physicality, they won't hurt me. This is a very common one, which is, uh, I've seen this in the West a lot. I by the way, I don't mind hugging, but it's, it's appropriate, right? Sometimes it's not appropriate. Uh, but the need to hug, which does what? What does hugging actually do? Why do people actually hug? Yeah, it's a, it's the ultimate safety. Once you've hugged, I couldn't be hurt. What else? What else is hugging for? It's physiological. What's hugging for? Fighting. It's very sophisticated. <laughs> and which immune cells are altered during that particular? If you're so close, you can't fight. What what else is done when people hug that most people don't even know that happens? A good sniff. You're close enough to sniff the other person. The handshake's a little harder, but people usually do. Oh yeah, you watch. Shake a hand like that. You get the smell all over your face because you're reading the person through smell. Hugging is close enough to get a really good, uh, I was going to say faceful, but, but, but noseful of the other person's odor, which tells you fear, uh, good chemistry, good mating, uh, not good mating, um, run really quickly. You know, like the mafia kiss? Uh-oh, I'm dead. You ever seen that movie? You know that movies? And the person goes, it's a great in movies, right? The person, kiss like this, and the person looks... I mean, they know they're they know they're finished, right? That that certain kiss by the dawn or something. Hello, get, let me embrace you. I've only got ten minutes to live. Okay. So, so, yeah. Well, what about leaving? You know, leaving like you just get like leaving a retreat early. Leaving you mean? A retreat early, yeah. Leaving the room, leaving a situation. Yeah, yeah. Just get up and go. Yeah. Sure, that's a defense mechanism. That's very good, yeah. Is if I just leave, I'm safe. Or if I now don't pay attention, I'm safe. That's a very common one. Just don't pay attention, zone out. Zone out. Ah, I've seen that. Right in the middle of a, of a meal. Students, right in the middle of a meal. I'm not kidding you, just habitual. Pull out their cell phone, and they're starting to look on their cell phone. What are you doing? Oh, oh, oh yeah. They've completely zoned out and they weren't there for five minutes. So what did we just talk about? I don't know. Not a clue. Zoned right out. For sure. They may as well just left the room. And sometimes they say, get out. Go. Go get out. You haven't been here for half an hour. Get out. Get out. Yeah. Zone out. Yeah. Walk out. And how about walk in? That's what, what you're also reading today. Walk in too much. And if I really get in there, and if I get in there like a dirty, sh you know that expression, dirty shirt? 
if I get in like a real like a a four year old shirt or these pants that are that, you know because when I was a teenager I used to wear jeans I liked you know for a whole year without washing them just, yeah so you know, like like a dirty pair of pants if I just get in there uh, with them they they won't hurt me you see so we do things optimally so we don't get hurt. Therefore, we treat objects as if they have meaning. We treat things, all kinds of stuff, all day long, especially around sound, to give it animation and meaning when, in fact, nothing at all. If we knew, This is why I'm advocating science. Dalat is advocating science, too, in a big way. If you actually know what you're built up with, you'll have more compassion. If you know that a human being... Let's just, let's just think about this logically, but you have to do it through insight, actually through real depth meditation. But if you know that a human being is only 5% human cells, and the rest of it is a biome, that's a lovely new word we're using, but biome, a environmental collection of all kinds of creatures that are on about their things, using us, we need them, they need us, but they actually have worlds of their own, of intention. Right? They're sentient too. Wouldn't you have more compassion for people's states? Mm-hmm. You actually maybe have empathy and go, well, maybe they're having a stomachache. Maybe actually their heart doesn't feel right. When Atisha used to greet people, this great saint from India, went to Tibet, went to Tibet for 13 years or 17 years, 17 years, died in Tibet. He would greet people most commonly by, how is your heart? Not, hello, how are you? He'd say, how is your heart today? A bit like Mariska Hardaday. Yes. You, know Hardaday. <laughs> you know where that's from, eh? Mariska Hardaday? Yeah. Mariska Hardaday. Mariska Hardaday. How, but how are you today? That's amazing. That's a great movie. Yeah. So, so how is your heart? You could even say how more today because of our understanding and how is your belly today? Not what your head is doing. How's your belly? Have you and the Buddha would say, have you eaten before a discourse? Would not supposedly according to tradition would not give a Dharma discourse until you, until everyone had eaten. Why? Because if the belly's not happy, the uh, the heart and the brain's not happy. Anyways, probably leave it there. Maybe a few other things. Let's see, I've written some other notes in there. Here's a question for you. This is on the same topic I've just been, been on about. How many times do we, do we actually automatically, without ever considering it, believe that the other person who's speaking has free will? That what they're saying is actually coming from them, is actually coming from a place of well-thought-out free will, and would we ever consider that, in fact, what they're saying or what they're doing or their activities have nothing to do particularly with them? I want you to consider that. And not just with you, but with the other person, the other, the other. How much of the other is really actually conscious of what it does when it makes a statement? Wouldn't you become more compassionate if you knew the depth of that? If you really understood the depth of how much actually is truly not available. I don't, not keen on the word unconscious. We'll, we'll, we'll start using it more and more. We need to get rid of that um, 
not so great Freudian model, although brilliant and good for its time of the unconscious, but how much is not available to conscious operations? And if you knew that, wouldn't you be much more compassionate about yourself and others, realizing that 99, 98% of all thought is just a little surface bump and is being directed by giant tidal oceanic currents that can't be seen. Wouldn't you have more compassion, more understanding, and less reactivity? That's good. That's fine. Thank you. Great. Carry on. What would be the first thing, if you're a compassionate being, what's the first thing that comes up in your mind? Defense? Run away? How do I defend myself? What is it? What's the first thing that comes up for the truly compassionate being? Not the defended being going, will I get hurt? How do I defend myself? How do I stay loved? But a being of true compassion who listens, who knows other beings' minds, knows their own mind. What's the first thing that comes up in their consciousness? Hmm? No, 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 no. They might kill you. Whack. They might. They're dangerous. What would you do? Compassion, but what would you do? What's compassionate? What's the source? Yeah, what is the source? What is the source of the illness? What is what is it that could unravel that being's trouble? Not embrace them. That can be very dangerous. Cut the story. Hmm? To cut the story. To cut the story. To cut the blind belief. But so so the first thing is not to run away or smother, but is to go, what could be done to relieve the suffering of that being? What is what is the main driver of this turmoil? And don't buy into the story. How many stories are actually true? Almost none. Have you had dialogues with a with a, a friend or a partner, and they're going on, and, and has nothing to do, right? Nothing at all to do with what they're talking about. Have you have you had this happen? When you talk to yourself, can you lose the argument? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I hadn't thought of that one, but but uh, okay, I don't, I don't know what that's like, but I don't know. I never even considered that. But. Have you have you had this experience? You've had this experience? Not with Barry's talking. About. <laughs> <laughs> I, I suspect Barry, there's a, there's a few that would, would go along with that. Yeah. It's quite something, isn't it? And it has nothing to do with what it is at all. Why buy into the stories? So sound is really powerful. Speech is absolutely fundamental. So when we talk about purification of a being, we need to speak about body, speech, and mind. Speech is a major component, and it gets people. as why Namjur Rinpoche often said, I, I'm quoting him from memory, often said, if you clear up the speech, you clear it all up. The, vib- the total vibrational level. Through speech, through vibration, you can clear up all the states. Why? It purifies very quickly. Because speech is, is vast. Not just speaking, but it's vast. Vast understanding of intention, stories, how things arise, how things pass away, what holds things up, what allows them to come apart. How do you do it? How are you going to actually figure this out? Not intellectually. Although it helps. 
It does. It really helps. You're going to have to examine activity and speech and vibration and energies at a minute, minute, close level until you begin to see. So it's done. And then you'll get less less buy into the story, less buy into stories. Okay, I think that's plenty for tonight. Unless you've got questions about that. Yes. Uh, what do you have to do? You have to come to closely examine body, speech, and mind. But when it comes to speech, all vibrations at all levels, and track them down and take out the projection. Take out the projection. This is why mindfulness. People don't don't get it. Why you don't talk? Why you cut down talking in retreat? Why you slow down? Non-interference. That mindfulness has to become of such high resolution that things are seen that have never been seen before. This is the Buddhist declaration, right? Isn't that beautiful? From the Buddha? Things ne- this is from the from the Buddha's discovery of the Four Noble Truths. Things never seen before. Could you imagine what he's what he's feeling like? Hmm. The discovery like like Einstein coming to uh, relativistic uh, physics or Newton going, Oh my God, gravity, figuring it out. Things never understood before. Talking to people and realizing, wow, this is fundamentally an earth changer. This is fundamentally a human population changer. You, you need to come to that for you. That, that feeling. Like Mary? Yeah? You know, not having an argument anymore. Going, this is fundamental. This insight. How do you do that? Again, that's the word. By the word, Vipassana means that. Vipassana. Again and again. Vipassana. To see again, to see again, to see again. Collect so much evidence. Be so close to it, so carefully examining, that eventually it lands. It just is there. Things never seen by you. Maybe maybe by the Buddha. Maybe by great yogis. I, I really enjoy that sometimes when people come. I love taking meditation reports or interviews. And people go, you know, wow. It's like they've made an earth-shattering discovery. Well, they have for them. Things never seen before for that being. Maybe not for humankind, for others, but that's important. How do you do that? Track it, track it, track it, track it. Keep tracking it until you see it clearly. And uh, that's why I promote retreats. Because it's in retreats that you can track things really, really carefully and finely very difficult to do in daily life. Is there good advantages in Dharma practice in daily life, in active life? Absolutely. But where does the strength come from? The great strength? Retreat work. It's always been that way. The Buddha, the Buddha, the Buddha would not even allow to have retreat centers, viharas, in any cities and towns. And that's ancient India. It's 2,500 years ago. There's a reason for it. The mind gets very, very busy and doesn't have the resolving power. I'll give you an example now, just for one more minute, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, I think I've told you this, but uh, at the University of Victoria, they're installing probably the most advanced electron microscope in the world. It was designed by one of the faculty. Uh, Built in Japan, shipped to Germany, 
software and other components were built in Germany. Now they're working with the bugs in Germany. It's going to be shipped over, I think, this summer. It's supposed to be. It might be delayed. Shipped over the summer. That machine is so sensitive that the the room to isolate, to develop, to get the resolution that's been designed into that machine, it's a $14 million microscope, to get the resolving power at less than the atomic distances requires a million point two dollar room to insulate any kind of vibration or disturbance in the room, including temperature-controlled walls. Why? Because a cloud going overhead is enough to disturb the resolution of the microscope. That's what, that's what he's calculated, right? Rodney's calculated through quantum physics that a cloud going overhead is enough to disturb, just the movement of a cloud is enough to disturb the resolution of that microscope. So what are they doing? They're doing exactly the same thing we need to do. We need to isolate ourselves so the resolution can come up. Do you know what resolution means? It's easy. The word resolution means the ability to see two lines clearly. Can you all see the two? Barry, can you see two lines in the glasses? Okay, so you do. Barry does not have the uh, visual resolving power to resolve these two lines. Barry, can you can you see these two lines? I can see your hands. Yes. Both hands? That means you have the resolving power of three feet. Can you see these two hands? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's about two feet. There's, an, there's enough that I can... How about now? No. That's about kind of eight and a half inches. Now? Mm, almost together. Okay, <laughs> that's 11 centimeters. I go back and forth between metric. Mm-hmm. Right? Sometimes it's a lot better though. Okay, so do you, do you understand about resolving power? So with microscopes, resolving power goes down, and you know, so you can see the lines or dots perfectly clearly and separated out. So we're always trying with telescopes and microscopes and imaging equipment to increase the resolving power to do what? Separate out fact from fiction. Separate, I'm using this analogy, but it's very clear, because I get to work on this all the time. Separate out artifacts, things that aren't there. Electron microscopes, because of the way they're operating, create artifacts when we think they're running biological systems, but actually it was just the electron microscope producing it. Why? Poor resolving power. Poor preparation techniques. Techniques that do something to a cell that now we look at and we go, wow, isn't that cool? Someone goes, well, it's because you smashed it up. <laughs> actually, it's the wrong cell, too. Because you switch them. You see? So resolving power. So in meditation, we want to get, in mindfulness, the resolving power finer and finer and finer, which means opening up too, by the way, but finer and finer and finer so we can start to see the illusions and stop making up what's happening in the gaps. This is really what's happening. And it's a very powerful tool to be able to do that. So you you want to be able to develop deep, profound mindfulness and observation. And it's amazing. And you will have statements, I hope, in your meditative career where you go, things I've never seen before. Jaw droppers. Not like Revelation, just, oh my God, I never saw that. That's amazing. I never saw, I remember one of the, one of the most profound instances for me in practicing insight, in an insight retreat, was picking up a cup 
being very deep, maybe three weeks into retreat, four weeks, moving very slowly by myself, and reaching over and picking up a cup, I went, oh my God. I've got aggression in that hand. I can feel it. That was a great revelation. That was just opened up insight meditation. It's fantastic. I reached over very slowly, and I could actually feel that the action of picking up the cup was containing an irritation and anger. So I just started doing it again and again and again and again until I could pick up the cup with with no emotional material going on. And it just opened it up. Wow, that's resolving power. I'm going to start doing that with everything now. Every movement, every 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 breath, you know, just it's all loaded. Not in any way, it's just so that's resolving power. Do you see that? Resolving power? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We need that. And that's where the revelation comes. My goodness. My goodness. If you say, Oh God, that's a good sign. If you say, Oh Buddha, I get suspicious, being from a Judeo Christian background. It's not very spontaneous. Oh Buddha! <laughs> really? Oh, oh, Shunyata! <laughs> Just wait for the, the phony ones to come out. But when someone comes and says, "Holy shit!" <laughs> more accurate. Yeah. Or someone's dropped to their knees because they're laughing, their guts it, and I go, "Okay, that's that's getting closer." Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any other any other questions? Any other things to? Are they floating that room on Mercury? No. No, it sits in the basement on concrete. No, but they have huge dampening systems for the microscopes. I have no idea on this one, but they're quite sophisticated. All these microscopes actually float on a table within a balancing thing. Those those tables are tens of thousands of dollars. I just remember watching one come in recently to a lab. It was it was an amazingly sophisticated table to dampen out vibrations because. We even found, for instance, Barry, we found uh, that the, one of the electron microscopes I used at the University of British Columbia, UBC, uh, worked uh, usually better, almost always better, at about 5.30 in the afternoon. Just at the end of the day, when you're just about to be finished, at 5.30, it starts to get, the resolution starts to increase and the imaging starts to, to get better because people clear out the building. Just clear out the building. You can tell. Get, get out of the building. I'd much rather work at night. Thanks. Get out and the phone calls and the electrical disturbance and everything else. So all that. So this is another principle of retreat work, is all of you are affecting each other. So when you come together in this room, not only am I affecting you, but you're affecting me and you're affecting each other. One person in a lousy state of mind can bring an entire retreat down. I've seen it. My own eyeballs. I've watched one individual rip a retreat apart or a retreat center apart because of their crappy mind states. I just watched it happen to another retreat center because of two individuals. Well, actually, one individual mainly, but one, two individuals. Just just pulling apart. Just pulling apart. Not so good to go there. No, you don't want to go there. Right? Crappy mind states. They're viral, and they spread. So that's vibration. That's sound. That's echoes. That's really... At a relative level, very important to comprehend how 
absolutely vital, critical, essential it is to really, really know what's happening. What people think about is not isolated. It spreads. So you want to be in good states. You want to be in good states. Supporting everybody. Supporting everybody. The, the better and the faster that you awaken, the greater that you awaken other beings. It's the case. It rubs off. The smell rubs off. The feeling rubs off. It, 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 it's it's uh, visceral. Okay. So, see you tomorrow morning um, for the next the next chapter. That might be a short one. <laughs> That's what we say. Oh, just be short. Be short. By this powerful activity, may it lead to cessation of the illusions that cause terrible suffering for all beings. Idante punikamang asawaki wang ho tu, idante punikamang asawaki wang ho tu, idante punikamang asawaki wang ho tu. May all beings be healthy and happy, and may all beings be established in a continuum of freedom, the perfect union of wisdom and compassion.